Hi, I'm Jonathan Hafitz, and welcome to Law and Film, a podcast that explores the rich connections between law and film. Law is critical to many films. Films, in turn, tell us a lot about the law. In each episode, we'll examine a film that's noteworthy from a legal perspective. What legal issues does the film explore? What does it get right about the law, and what does it get wrong? And what does the film teach us about the law and the larger social and cultural context in which it operates? This episode will explore the iconic Indiana Jones trilogy, some of the most popular and well-known movies of all time. The trilogy consists of the first three movies in the series, Raiders of the Lost Ark from 1981, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom from 1984, and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade from 1989. The films in the trilogy are based on stories by George Lucas and directed by Steven Spielberg. They feature archaeologist and adventurer Dr. Indiana Jones, played by Harrison Ford, as he travels across the world in the years before World War II to obtain valuable historical, cultural, and religious artifacts and to overcome the many obstacles, human and natural, that stand in his way. The trilogy, and especially the first film, Raiders of the Lost Ark, is the cornerstone of the Indiana Jones franchise, which includes two additional films, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull from 2008 and Dial of Destiny from 2023, as well as a TV series, video games, comic books, novels, theme parks, and toys. The three films have inspired countless filmmakers and had a significant effect on cinema and popular culture. They also have important, if less discussed, legal dimensions. This episode, we're gonna examine the trilogy from the perspective of international heritage law. The body of law centered around the preservation of property of historical, cultural, and religious significance. While international heritage law may not be at the forefront of the Indiana Jones trilogy, the subjects of that law, the priceless items from antiquity that Indiana Jones and his various supporting cast seek to recover, are. Our guest today to discuss the Indiana Jones trilogy is Dr. Lucas Lashinsky. Dr. Lashinsky is a professor at the Faculty of Law and Justice at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. Prior to joining the University of New South Wales, he was a postgraduate fellow at the Bernard and Audrey Rapport Center for Human Rights and Justice at the University of Texas Law School. Lucas holds a PhD in international law from the European University Institute in Florence, Italy, and an LLM in human rights law from the Central European University in Budapest, Hungary, as well as an LLB from the Federal University of Rio Grande do Sul in Porto Alegre, Brazil. He researches and teaches across a range of fields in international law, primarily international cultural heritage law and international human rights law. He sits on the board of editors of multiple well-regarded journals. He's also a co-founder and editor of the International Law Agendas, a blog of the Brazilian branch of the International Law Association devoted to Global South engagements with international law. His 2020 co-edited commentary with Janet Blake to the UNESCO's Intangible Cultural Heritage Convention, published by Oxford University Press, received the American Society of International Law's Certificate of Merit for High Technical Craftsmanship and Utility to Practicing Lawyers and Scholars. He's a regular contributor to print, radio, and television media, and he's featured regularly in Times Higher Education, SBS Radio in Spanish, and also outlets like ABC News, the Sydney Morning Herald, and others. Last but not least, Lucas is also the author of a fantastic article on the Indiana Jones trilogy published in the London Review of International Law. Lucas, welcome. Thank you for having me. We're going to have some fun. 
Absolutely. I mean, with these movies, which are so much fun, we can only honor them by doing so in our podcast. So just to get us started, can you talk first a little bit about international heritage law and also why film can be a valuable media to help understand it? International heritage law, which in the U.S. you would call cultural property law, is the area of law that addresses how we name and we safeguard uh, the markers of our identity. And these markers, they can be monuments, sites, they can be shipwrecks, paintings, dances, storytelling traditions, musical instruments, the music we play with those instruments, even stamp collections and food. And so it's a wide gamut of different expressions of identity and that, you know, the fluffy thing that glues us together as a society. And film helps us see then what heritage is beyond just that pretty photo that we find online. And by allowing us to see heritage, how it plays out in the real world and how people relate to it, it can show us the way in which different people relate to different heritage and why we need a law to help make sense of those relationships and how they connect to this idea that we should be safeguarding heritage, right? And why we're safeguarding heritage, for whom are we safeguarding heritage? It's a wide range of tangible objects, some of which have, well, value is subjective. We could say a different value in the Indiana Jones trilogy. I guess we're talking about very high value, rare items, but it really covers a wide range of things. Yeah, absolutely, right? And we have a, a whole bunch of different treaties under UNESCO and a few under other international organizations, each of which is dedicated to a different type of heritage or domain of heritage, as UNESCO likes to call it. So you mentioned UNESCO, United Nations Educational Scientific Cultural Organization, and you talk about the Indiana Jones trilogy as portrayals of cultural heritage disputes in a pre-UNESCO era by films made in the post-UNESCO period. Uh, and you explain that a little bit in your article. Can you break that down, what you mean by the pre-UNESCO and post-UNESCO period? Yeah, so what I mean there is that, you know, effectively the timeline of Indiana Jones is all pre-1970s. Well, if you look at the original trilogy, we're all talking about, you know, the Second World War. UNESCO wasn't created until after the war ended, which is when the United Nations was created as well. So it doesn't exist there. And even if you look at the two later ones, Dial of Destiny, which is the fifth one, that's set in 1969, which is in a weird way a key year for international heritage law, because it's the year before the 1970 convention that forbids the import and export of cultural artifacts came into existence, right? So in a way, everything that happens in Indiana Jones uh, movies happens before the key international treaty uh, in the area came into existence. And because there's this time thing going on, the Indiana Jones doesn't need to grapple with UNESCO and international law in general, even though it does a little bit of that. So that's a key dividing line. Well, the trilogy anyway, are all before World War II and the post-war era with UNESCO and various other international treaties, customary norms. So it's, it's set in that period, but as you said, it kind of informs it nonetheless, informs understanding these films. Another interesting thing about your article, you kind of break down films about international heritage law into two categories. You've got fully fictional adventure films, like the trilogy, the Indiana Jones trilogy, and then you reference films that are based on historical events. The Monuments Men, which deals with Nazi looting of art during World War II, Women in Gold, which deals with the attempt to recover the iconic uh, Klimt painting of Adele Bloch-Bauer that the Nazis had taken. We're going to focus on the movies from the first category, the fictional adventure films, the Indiana Jones trilogy. But before we dive into the movie itself or the movies themselves, 
what can fictional pop cultural films like Indiana Jones, which don't really wear law on their sleeve, teach us about international heritage law or cultural heritage law? The fact that they are pop cultural, right? They have a much broader reach. I mean, Monuments Man and Woman in Gold are fantastic movies, if you ask me, but they have a more limited kind of audience. They're not iconic the way Indiana Jones is. So it's a way to kind of backdoor or sneak in a lot of conversations about the ethics of heritage. And I think also because they are fictional, we get to buy more easily into that suspension of disbelief. And so we come to the table with a few less preconceptions about what should happen, even though we're still pretty sure that the Nazis are the bad guys all along. One would hope, right? (laughs) So they allow us to think a little bit more detachedly about how we relate to culture, why we care, and all of those important questions without a known outcome. Turning to the movies themselves, let's start with Raiders, my personal favorite. I'm going to wait till the end to ask you about your personal favorite, but Raiders, probably because I remember it so well, my favorite. Early in Raiders, Raiders of the Lost Ark, there's a scene between Indiana Jones and Marcus Brody, who's played by Denholm Elliott. Uh, he's the museum curator or a museum curator and Indiana's friend. And it occurs at the conclusion of Indiana Jones' class at the university. He's just returned from an adventure where he managed to extract a golden idol from a booby-trapped temple in the Amazon jungle in Peru, only to have the item taken from him by his rival and nemesis, the French archaeologist René Belloc, played by Paul Freeman, who's working for the Nazis. The idol is actually fictitious. I think it's wrongly attributed as a, a Peruvian object when it's really Aztec. But you can view it, I think, still in the Dunbar Noakes collection in, in Washington, D.C., But in any event, there's a brief but informative reference in the exchange to international law before Marcus tells Indiana Jones that there are important people from U.S. Army intelligence waiting to see him. Let's look at this exchange. I'm going to play the clip of this interchange between Marcus and Indiana Jones. I had it, Marcus. I had it in my hand. What happened? Belloc? You want to hear about it? Not at all. I'm sure everything you do for the museum conforms to the International Treaty for the Protection of Antiquities. It's beautiful, Marcus. I can get it. I got it all figured out. There's no one place you can sell it, Marrakesh. I need $2,000. Listen to the five books of people to see you. Look, I got these pieces. They're good pieces, Marcus. Look, Indiana. Yes, the museum will buy them as usual. No questions asked. Yes, they are nice. They're worth at least the price of a ticket to Marrakesh. Well, the people I brought are important and they're waiting. What you? The Army Intelligence. They knew you were coming before I did. Seem to know everything. You couldn't tell me what they want. Well, what do I want to see them for? What am I, in trouble? So, Lucas, what does this exchange tell us about the law of cultural property or international heritage law and the role it plays in the movie? It's kind of fascinating, right, that that, that they make sure to have this reference so early on to a treaty that, by the way, does not exist, but it is a treaty that exists in the Indiana Jones universe. Apparently, the U.S. is a party to it. But then what it does in terms of a narrative device within the movie, what I think it does is that it cleans the slate of the first action sequence, right? So... We have that as an establishing kind of sequence about who Indiana Jones is, and he likes adventure, he's good at it, and he goes and gets the prize. And then there's all these ethics as to whether he should be doing that. 
So we resolve all the ethics by having that reference to the one treaty. And instead we can just focus on Indiana Jones as a good guy doing good things for the museum and for the scientific community. That's what it does, right? It essentially says we don't need to worry about the aftermath of that opening sequence. Let's just move on and look at the new adventure, which is what then Brody, the Brody character, sets up at the very end of that exchange. This scene is followed by the scene between Indiana Jones and the U.S. military intelligence officer Brody, where Indiana Jones, from what they tell him, realizes that Balak and therefore the Nazis are seeking to recover the Ark of the Covenant as part of the Nazi attempt to gather up religious Christian artifacts, which is actually historically correct with Hitler's fascination with them. So that evening, Marcus comes to Indiana Jones' house, tells him the U.S. wants him to recover the Ark for the U.S. before the Nazis do. Indiana Jones is thrilled to hear this. This is the, the dream of every archaeologist, probably, and every adventurer. So it checks both boxes. And Indiana is happy to learn, too, that the Ark will go into a museum for study, presumably, once it's found. And Indiana tells Marcus the Ark represents everything they got into archaeology for in the first place. So I guess this sort of supports what you're saying about setting up the narrative in terms of Indiana Jones's motives and purposes in this quest. So Indiana Jones' take is very typical of the Western and or Christian archaeologists. Uh, it's this idea that we're collecting and we're amassing all these artifacts for the benefit of, quote-unquote, all of humanity. And as long as we put that object in a museum, preferably, by the way, a, quote-unquote, universal museum, which is a term of art to designate what you would once call an encyclopedic museum, right? So we're talking about museums like the Met in New York or the Louvre or the British Museum. So as long as it goes into one of the museums, then it can be there for the benefit of all of humanity, quote unquote again. And then we have ultimately done everyone a big service. So it echoes some of that logic uh, that the British Museum still sort of uses today to keep things like the Parthenon marbles. These marbles, they're too good to be out there in the open. They belong in a museum. And it just so happens that the British Museum is the right one to keep those artifacts. So he brings a lot of assumptions about Western archaeology, a lot of which have come under a lot of attack lately, and thankfully they've been eroded. But of course, in the 80s, that was still kind of the prevailing way of thinking. That's really interesting because the films, like you say, predate the treaties and the legal framework in terms of the time they're set, pre-World War II era, but they're made in the 80s which postdates this period, this period's in place, but the assumptions are different and are evolving now. So I guess what you're saying is there's kind of a different perspective in 2023, looking back, you know, this scene from Raiders 40 plus years ago, where Indiana Jones is going to collect this for good purpose. He's going to put it in a museum that resonated differently legally, politically in 1981 when the film was made than it does today in 2023. Is that right? So it is interesting to see those shifts in time, but also you kind of see it echoing today in some ways, right? Because if you look at Dial of Destiny, which came out in 2023, I know it's not directed by Spielberg, and I don't think it was written by George Lucas either, but it is cut from the same cloth. And if you look at the positioning and interactions between Indiana Jones and Helena Shaw, who's the new character introduced as Indiana Jones's niece, and she's played by Phoebe Waller-Bridge, you still see a lot of the same ideas about, you know, collecting is good as long as it is for a museum or a historical department or archaeology department. And she's the villain all along, spoiler, 
alert, sorry, everyone, but she's the villain all along because she's working in her own interest and or for private collectors. So there's still this kind of binary between the private collector bad and the public museum good, and it doesn't really problematize a lot of whether it should be in a museum in the first place, this dial. We have a running spoiler alert on the podcast, so no worry about jumping to the end. That's really interesting how you talk about the way that the private collector is problematized in contradistinction to the museum, the collector for the public good. And, you know, it's interesting, too, because if you go back to the third in the series, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, the last film in the trilogy of the first three, it starts off with a flashback scene where a young Indy, he's a Boy Scout at the time, comes upon a group of looters or raiders attempting to remove a valuable object, a jewel-encrusted cross of Coronado, so another Christian artifact from a cave or tomb near Utah, where Indy's on a trip with his Boy Scout group. And the group is led by a swashbuckling raider who resembles, at least in some respects, the future Indiana Jones. Indy snatches the cross, he escapes in a great chase scene, only to be foiled when the looters and their powerful private collector catch up with him back in town, and the sheriff forces Indy to hand over the cross, right? The law, the power of make Indy give it back. And Indy says, right, he protests, this is an important object belongs in a museum. And then after the cross is taken from Indy, the looter gives Indy the fedora, the iconic fedora that he was wearing in the Indy later sports throughout the series as a sign of respect for his gumption and his future as a treasure hunter. So it seems like this moment really sets up what you're kind of talking about in terms of the role of museums in the preservation of cultural heritage in the whole series, right? Look, this is such an important scene in terms of motivation for the hero, right? It's the biographical flashback, the thing that forges Indiana Jones and his character. But then it also speaks a lot about these continuities, right? And how perhaps the bad guy, quote unquote, who we have no problem calling a looter and our hero are not that different after all. So they both want to dig stuff up. They both want artifacts. And they probably see their roles as similarly, quote unquote, rescuing heritage. So collectors deploy that logic all the time, right? So they say that buying Syrian artifacts that ISIS put up on eBay is actually a means of saving those artifacts, or so does the logic go for them. And of course, that's not the case. It's not how market incentives work. So coming back to the movie, then Indy's reaction is a little bit better than those collectors defending buying stuff off of eBay, in that at least he wants to turn it over to the public. And in a domestic context, it all mostly sort of works, because that crucifix in the U.S. to go into a U.S. museum, so we don't have to deal with the logics right at that point of taking something from Egypt and putting it in a U.S. museum. But there's a lot more that unites looters and collectors on the one hand, and researchers, museums, on the other hand, then actually divides them in many ways. That's so interesting. If you can briefly explain what does the current law of cultural property or international heritage law say? I mean, how would it evaluate the recovery of the Cross of Coronado in Last Crusader or the Golden Idol in Raiders that's first recovered? I mean, what would international law say about these properties once recovered? What international law says is that if an object has been taken out of the territory of a country without the proper authorization, which is an export certificate, like uh, customs paperwork, essentially, then it needs to be returned immediately. So were that idol in the opening sequence of Raiders be taken today or in a post-1970 kind of world? Then it would have to be returned to Peru, and then Peru would get to decide its fate. So it's a very different logic, and it's what some people have called 
a quote-unquote nationalist or even retentionist kind of approach, uh, which some people are critical of. But on the other hand, it's fair enough. It's that country's stuff. You shouldn't automatically go to a U.S. museum just because a U.S. archaeologist happened to dig it up or, you know, find it after escaping a boulder. What about if it was recovered in the pre-World War II period? What if it was recovered in 1970, the Golden Idol or the Cross? What if, like in the movie, they were recovered in the pre-World War II era? Right. So, and that meant essentially that as long as you respected domestic law, you were all good. And most countries had very loose regulations, right? Let's not forget that pre-1970, especially in a pre-Second World War kind of universe, most of those countries where you find a lot of antiquities were colonies, right? So they didn't have a lot of autonomy in deciding their own laws, and it was all hunky-dory for them to move, especially to the colonial metropolis. And that's how a lot of museums kind of made their names, and, and that's how they were even created, right? The British Museum is famously the museum created to showcase the empire where the sun never sets. And so there was a lot of that movement, and it was all lawful. Uh, but of course, then as those countries started to gain independence, they wanted their stuff back. And that was kind of the big push to create what became the 1970 Convention, right? It was these decolonizing countries, which we would call, quote unquote, source countries, wanting their stuff back. But then the countries that had the objects, which we usually call market nations or market countries, they did not want to give stuff back. And they essentially said, look, yeah, that's a cute little idea, but we're not going to ratify this treaty if it is made retroactive because we're not going to give you your stuff. So they made the treaty non-retroactive, which kind of shoots it in the foot a little bit. And in a response to that, by the countries that wanted their stuff back, is say, look, okay, we cannot get our stuff anymore. So instead, we're going to prevent anything from leaving this country again. So they created this super strict kind of legislation, which in some ways is responsible for, if not creating, at least growing tremendously the black market in antiquities. Because then what starts happening is that people stop declaring these uh, movements, of course, or they start forging a lot of paperwork. You know, looting 101 these days is to come up with some dodgy letter written by your great-grandfather who allegedly was a diplomat in that country and who just so happened to leave that country in 1968 or 1969. Therefore, you have a quote-unquote providence history of the object without having to give it back because then the treaty doesn't apply. So to the extent that you have the disputes you have today involving often art, the cultural property as well, it's about the provenance and basically tracing it back to the point where the legal regulation comes in and would prohibit it to show that it was lawfully, quote-unquote lawfully, obtained. Exactly. You have to show this provenance history and you have to do a lot of due diligence in obtaining or fact-checking that provenance history. But then what happens a lot of the time is that this due diligence standard is overseen by museums and collectors themselves, which means that there is a, an incentive for the enforcement to be relatively lax. And then we end up with a lot of, you know, us just kind of accepting those stories that some dodgy dealer kind of presents to us. And that happens a lot, right? And there's a guy, an Indian citizen, Subhash Kapoor, who for decades ran a gallery in New York, which was kind of known for having the, the best South Asian antiquities that anyone could get, right? And museums and governments poured millions and millions of dollars 
into Subhash Kapoor's business, trying to acquire the best antiquities. Turns out he was just looting and laundering those items. And he was actually using, for a while, his dad partner as the person who had, you know, this diplomat grandfather who happened to then have taken these things just before the law entered into force. Speaking of dodgy British practices, just a shout out to another podcast you may or may not call Stuff the British Stole, which is Australian produced, you know, the podcast, which is... Yeah, yeah, Australian and Canadian. But yeah, the guy is Australian, uh, Mark Fennell. It's a great podcast, everyone. Check it out. Talking about all the things the British took, you know, in this backdrop of the pre-UNESCO legal framework and various efforts to get them back. There are arguments, maybe they're more political than legal, that if the various items, especially in the pre-World War II period or going back further 19th century, had not been taken and collected and put in museums, they would have been destroyed. Now, film doesn't directly engage with that, although to some extent it raises that question in a different way because there's a sense there's a race to get these objects. Like in Raiders, there's a race for the art between Indy, the Americans, and the Nazis. Well, it's a little complicated because the Nazis want to use it as like a weapon as opposed to something to boost their sort of cultural standing. But in a sense, if Egypt, which is where the Ark they learn is located, is letting the Nazis hunt for it, you know, would the Americans be justified in getting it? And, And what do you think of this argument more generally? If we don't get it, it'll be destroyed or in the Raiders framework, it'll be put to nefarious purposes. That argument circulates a lot, right? And I think it's tricky because, sure, it would have been destroyed, but there's what if the British Museum had been bombed during the Blitz? Then would Greece then have a a reason to be really, really mad at the Brits? The British would say no. So yes, I think the consequence of if we hadn't taken it, it would have been destroyed. I think the natural logical consequence is to say, okay, thank you very much for taking it then. And looking after it, it's okay for us to have it back now. Thank you very much. So I think that argument can only go as far as to say we were a temporary haven for this object. It shouldn't translate into property or ownership the way that people see it translating into. So I don't buy it at all. And by the way, it also ignores the fact that a lot of harm happens to these objects as well, or used to happen to these objects anyway. When they were being transported, there were no guarantees that the Parthenon marbles would have survived the travel to the UK. They did. And then when they got to the British Museum, one of the first things that the team at the British Museum did was to actually scrub those marbles with iron wool to make them whiter because that's what they thought that Greek art was supposed to look like. And in the process, they erased a lot of the fine detail, first of all, but they also erased a lot of archaeological evidence of the fact that those marbles had been painted and they were multicolored. The Greeks did a sculptive marble because it was white and pure. That's a very racist thing that we chose to believe in when scientific racism was all the rage and fashionable. They just used marble because that's what they had lying around. And to ancient Greeks, what made those sculptures beautiful was not just the sculpting, it was actually also painting them. And all of that was erased by the British Museum, quote unquote, taking really good care of those marbles. So I don't buy that logic for a number of reasons. 
Yeah, it's great you point that out too. And as an aside, there was an excellent exhibition of the various Greek statues in the Metropolitan Museum of Art a year or two ago. We'll put aside the question of ownership for a moment, but where they actually had the items restored in the sense that they to look as they were painted, extremely colorful, and it's kind of revelatory. So you thought the British, et cetera, at all were great caretakers, but they weren't necessarily. To some extent, it's lucky they were preserved and they didn't preserve them necessarily in the way they were supposed to be preserved. The Indiana Jones films it's an easier issue for them to navigate because in the first and the third, in Raiders and Last Crusade, the items, the Ark in Raiders and the Holy Grail in Last Crusade are being chased by the Nazis. So the Nazis are going to get them, just they're not just going to hoard them, they're going to use them to amass power and take over the planet. So it's a little bit different, but you know, you talk a little bit about them in your paper and the fact that they're these Christian artifacts religious artifacts. So I wonder if the Ark in Raiders and then the Holy Grail in Last Crusade, you talk a little bit about their significance in terms of being these religious, in particular Christian artifacts. They are religious, right? They're very fundamental to Judeo-Christian ethics and mythology. And that's lovely, right? And in many ways, what makes them so exciting and so important, right? And justifies this reckless expenditure of time and resources uh, to go after them. We must have them at all costs, sort of thing, right? So it heightens the stakes of the chase both times. But then it also helps portray the Nazis as bad Christians in some ways, right? So it helps with their badness because they want them for the wrong reasons. They want them not out of respect for a greater power. They want them for the power itself so they can wield it. So there is a complicated kind of relationship there. And I think the Christian themes helps heighten them. And even the establishing sequence in Last Crusade, right? It's still also about a crucifix. So I think it helps cast Indiana Jones as a, as a good Christian boy. And people who want to use Christian artifacts for the wrong reasons as bad Christians and therefore uh, villains also on those grounds. I want to go back to Raiders for a moment. There's a really interesting moment from a character development perspective and maybe from an international law perspective when near the end of Raiders, Indiana threatens to destroy the Ark unless the Nazis free Marion. His love interest, played by Karen Allen, and Rene Balak challenges Indy to carry out the threat. Basically tells the Nazis, hey, put your guns down and calls Indy out and says, I dare you. I'll play the clip of this exchange now. Jones? Jones! I'm going to blow up the ark, Renee. Your persistence surprises even me. You're going to give mercenaries a bad name. Dr. Jones? Surely you don't think you can escape from this island. It depends on how reasonable we're all willing to be. All I want is the girl. If we refuse? Then your Fuhrer has no prize. Okay, Jones. You win. Blow it up. Yes, blow it up! Blow it back to God. All your life has been spent in pursuit of archaeological relics. Inside the Ark are treasures beyond your wildest aspirations. You want to see it open as well as I. Indiana, we are simply passing through history. This, this is history. Do as you will. So this is an effective, dramatic moment, I think. But it also surfaces a question in international heritage law, albeit through the prism of Indiana Jones's love for Marion. And that is, what value should be placed on human life in the effort to protect 
valuable cultural and historical artifacts. I mean, isn't it true that sometimes trade-offs need to be made to preserve a certain structure or item, you may end up losing some additional life. How does that trade-off play out in international law? I get this question often enough, and you see it a lot in debates around emergencies, right? Both conflicts and disasters for the most part. And I have a two-part answer to that. First, which is that I I tend to reject the premise that it's more often than not an either-or, because that's a zero-sum mentality that works when you drill down on the specifics of one small example. But in the broader context of an emergency and as a matter of law and policy setting, there's plenty of room for both to be executed, and sometimes actually both at once. The second part of the answer is that there's often a bit of a short-sightedness to this kind of argument, just because it assumes that the priority should always be the human being as a biological entity. And once we focus on that, we downplay the importance of heritage as the thing that turns us from a bunch of biological entities into a society. So heritage is the glue that makes us work as a group, and we cannot really downplay its role. This story is really well known, or I've read it too many times, perhaps, so it's well known to me, but probably to many others as well listening. So Raphael Lemkin, who is the key drafter of the what became the 1948 Genocide Convention, going on 75 years of age this year, he already knew that conversation, right? He already had very in mind that genocide hinges critically on the destruction of culture, on the destruction of collective identity. And so he already knew that when he did the work that ultimately became the Genocide Convention. But then... The states negotiating the treaty after Lemkin had done his bit ignored all of that, mostly because they were trying to avoid scrutiny of their own records vis-a-vis their internal minorities, and then they left it out of the ultimate text of the treaty. But Lemkin's insight is still very much true today, and we can see it playing out everywhere, right? Plus, heritage plays a really important role in helping societies bounce back in the aftermath of an emergency, because it gives people around which to rally. And it's important to remember that. And even one specific example, right? I don't know if you remember all these videos on YouTube and social media of people in Italy singing traditional songs uh, from their windows when they were first locked down because of COVID, right? Which is where the pandemic began in Europe. And they did that around cultural heritage, right? It helped them survive what was a really tough and scary time. And so to sum up my answer, then we don't need to choose, first of all, more often than not. And secondly, we need to remember that cultural heritage is what makes us a society worth protecting. Great point and really eloquently put. In New York, we just bang pots, but I think that's a form of cultural heritage performance as well. Can we talk about the ending of Raiders a little bit? You know, I think it's a great ending where Indiana foils the Nazis, the Ark's recovered, and he's rewarded handsomely for his efforts. But the Ark, which is an object of tremendous historical and religious importance, as well as being uniquely powerful, doesn't end up in a museum for study. Instead, the film ends with this shot of the Ark in a crate being taken to this sort of like a warehouse in an undisclosed location, along with other crates presumably of other cultural artifacts, where the extent it's going to be studied, it's going to be studied solely by U.S. government, U.S. military. So the public is not going to get to view or share in this unique item. What did you make of that from a cultural heritage perspective? 
It's funny. It reminds me a little bit of this um, scene in Monuments Man, which is a different movie, right? It's the one with George Clooney and stuff. And the Kate Blanchett character, uh, who's a French resistance uh, person, she asks, you know, the the, the Monuments Man who are about to take uh, to help save all this heritage away out of the Nazis' hands. So she's like, help me steal our heritage back from those who stole it or something like that. I'm butchering the quote. But it's essentially this idea that somehow in the morality of warfare, the U.S. stealing those artifacts is justified because its power is too great to be in the wrong hands. And we somehow assume that the U.S. is the right hands. But I would say that perhaps the answer is not to keep it in a storage unit, it's to actually destroy it, to be honest, or at least drop it to the bottom of the ocean. But this decision then also brings to mind the practice of these major museums, what I was referring to earlier as the quote-unquote universal museums, which is to hoard things away from communities and countries just so they can say they have them. And major museums, they tend to keep upwards of 80% of their collections in storage, so what you see in a museum, overwhelming as it is in a large museum like the Met in New York or the British Museum or the Louvre or what have you, is only a very small fraction of what they actually own. And then keeping all of that in storage as opposed to in a country of origin, how exactly is that supposed to be benefiting humanity in the way that Indiana Jones and his colleagues think it does? So there's a lot of to think about in terms of whether a storage room is the right fate for an artifact. There's a new development, which I'm sure you're familiar with in terms of uh, virtual reality. I'm curious about your thoughts about that, where it's recreated in the country through virtual reality. Maybe the ARC would have been a good vehicle for that, given its potential destructive power. The VR trends is interesting, right? Yeah, I, I, I've... yeah the digital repatriation thing is fascinating, and the VR recreation. There are a lot of stories about that, right? And, and I think it would have been very suitable for the ARC. But when people tried to do it to the bust of Nefertiti, which is in a museum in Berlin, and some Egyptian artists slash activists that did a 3D scan, they were actually prosecuted by the, the museum in Berlin for stealing their quote-unquote intellectual property or something to that effect, which was the likeness of Nefertiti, never mind that she's actually Egyptian. And then there's also this whole conversation about instead of sending objects back to communities of origin, sending out just a virtual replica of it, and museums somehow trying to convince communities of origin that the virtual, the digital copy is just as good. If it is just as good, then you keep the digital copy, which is something that then the, the French government is going for. That was a whole report by two academics, a Senegalese and a French. It's known as the Sars-Savoy report, and it's something that Emmanuel Macron commissioned, which essentially said that everything should be sent back to the countries of origin in Africa. Great. But then it goes on to say that before anything is sent back, a digital copy must be made and kept in a French museum to institute a quote-unquote radical practice of sharing. I'm okay with the radical practice of sharing as a principle, but I don't think it should be the rule because it's not for the museum sending the thing back to decide what happens to it. That's not restitution, right? Or, or that's half-assed restitution. So I love the conversations about VR and what happens in restitution more generally, but sometimes they just drive me up the wall when we have people trying to control what happens to an object, because that's not really restitution. 
those are putting strings on something you can't put strings on. Uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Let me shift to the second movie in the trilogy for a minute, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which is interesting when you juxtapose it with the first and the third, because it offers a portrayal of Indiana Jones somewhat at odds with his prior portrayal as a servant of Western museum interests. In Temple of Doom, Indiana Jones is tasked by a community in an impoverished part of India where he winds up after narrowly escaping death when the plane, small plane escaped from Shanghai and is sabotaging crashes. And the community asks him to return their sacred stone, their sacred artifact. And he does. And he gives it back at the end to the community. And the communities are sort of healing and restoration within the community. So I don't know. Interesting your take on this different portrayal of Indiana Jones or more layered portrayal from an international heritage law perspective. Yeah, so Temple of Doom puts Indiana Jones at the service, not of a Western institution, but instead of a community that lives in, with, or around the heritage, right? So it kind of recenters why we do this. It's not for the glory of your museum. It's not for the glory of an unspecified humanity that just so happens to be accounted for via the eyes of a Western archaeologist working for a Western institution. Instead, look, it's the community, right? And we're doing it for them. So it reminds us that that heritage means something not just for our gaze as the Western collector or the Western visitor to a museum, but also for the people who created that artifact and kept those artifacts generation after generation. The movie shifts our discussion about why we care about heritage and for whom we care about heritage. And it also shows Indiana Jones is capable of that level of empathy towards people who otherwise appear in the other movies simply as background. So in many ways, it's a very progressive movie, if I were to read it from an international heritage law perspective, because it does things that even international heritage law didn't really do at the time and still barely does today, which is to really focus on what the community wants. It's interesting. It happens in one of the three films of the trilogy where Indiana Jones is not pit against the Nazis. Instead, it's against this indigenous community. I think it was Lucas who specifically didn't want the second film to be about the Nazis. So for whatever reason, I think that facilitated that message. And I think the fact that if Indiana Jones was taking this valuable item from the community back to the West, it would have, I think, colored the portrayal of Indiana Jones as a hero more. It's easier to be a hero when you're snatching it from the Nazis, even if it's for a museum, than when you're snatching it from this tribe in rural India. Exactly. But let's not forget also that at the end of the day, the saviors of the community as a whole, right after the artifact issue is resolved, is the British Army. So we're not upsetting the international order quite as much in the 40s via this movie. Each of the films involve, in one way or another, Indiana Jones's interaction with indigenous or non-Western populations. And sometimes they're friends or allies. You have Salah, the Egyptian excavator, played by John Rhys Davies, who appears in Raiders and Last Crusade, or Short Round, the 11-year-old taxi driver in Shanghai who helps Indy escape from the crime boss Lao Che in the Temple of Doom, who's played by Kei Hui Kwan, who uh, thrilled to see won acclaim many decades later for his recent role in Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, and won an Oscar for that, so it's really nice to see that. Sometimes they're allies, and I think there's some problematic issues around some of the casting, the stereotypes. But another question is, often the indigenous or non-Western characters are opponents. 
and they're seeking to kill Indiana Jones or prevent him from recovering the various cultural treasures. So can you talk a little bit about Indiana Jones's interaction with these indigenous and non-Western people and the contrast between Western scientific archaeology investigations and local practices and views and claims to possess these cultural and religious treasures? Of course, it was lovely to see Kei Hui Kwan actually thanking Spielberg in his acceptance speech, right? Saying, look, you're the guy who gave me a shot and Steven Spielberg was up for best director. He didn't get it. Actually, the director is off everything, everywhere else once got that one as well. But it was lovely to see that kind of moment playing out at the ceremony. But then back to Indiana Jones. So the indigenous or non-Western or non-white kind of characters in the movies, they tend to be background a lot of the time, unfortunately, or they play small roles to kind of nudge ethics in the right direction and sort of falling into that trope of the, the wise person of color that Hollywood loves, at least in, in its early and unfortunately still some of its current attempts at diversity and just playing off this uh, noble savage kind of idea over and over. Because of all of that, because of all that load that we open with, the interactions tend not to be too great as a result. And even when we have these iconic and fully fleshed out characters like Short Round, or for that matter, Salah, right, which also comes back in Dial of uh, Destiny, there's still sidekicks a lot of the time. And I can get that from a storytelling sort of perspective. It is in this story, after all, and his worldview is the central one. Everything else is a side character. But then Indy could also afford to be even more sympathetic to those views coming from elsewhere and really lean more heavily on those voices and those ideas about what to do with heritage and why we're doing this. And much in the way that archaeology in general is now learning and starting to do, because they're learning that their view is not the one that matters most. It's that really confronting realization in a lot of archaeological circles and law is starting to get on board and catch up with that as well, that archaeologists, they work for the people at the end of the day and not for the heritage, which is a really important kind of distinction. I really like how you frame the way that those characters, the sidekick characters operate in the films as well. And it's true too of the various female characters too. I mean, everyone's kind of serving Indy's worldview. So Indiana Jones has become like an icon of American, I think, world cinema. And He's also, so I've read, apparently increased the popularity of archaeology as a profession. In what way do you think he's like a fitting or problematic character for an exploration of themes around international heritage law, cultural preservation? I mean, obviously he's fictional, and I don't know any archaeologist who's uh, quite the James Bond-esque character he is. But still, what do you think of India as the vessel for archaeology? I think it's really fascinating, right? I didn't get into heritage law because of Indiana Jones, uh, I must declare. Um, (laughs) It was for other reasons. But I do distinctly remember, right, after I got into heritage law and I rewatched these movies because they were on TV or because of just fun kind of things, I started feeling kind of differently about the whole thing, right? I mean, there's still delightful romps, but I started worrying a little bit more about the ethics and what was happening to those artifacts. But also then kind of having that presence, right, and having that knowledge a little bit more. It allowed me to see Indiana Jones as a much more complex and therefore richer character to explore many facets of what heritage law does. So Indiana Jones in many ways primarily focuses on what heritage law does, which is to protect heritage or safeguard heritage. And for the most part, it conflates the what we do, which is to protect the heritage, with why we do it, right? We protect heritage for its own sake. And because we need knowledge, we need it for the, the museums and all of that. 
But every now and then, like in um, Temple of Doom, uh, we have a complicated factor, right? And, and something that makes us think that the why we protect heritage can be very different. There's a community in Temple of Doom, or there's a ghost in Last Crusade, right? Whose legacy merits respecting, even at the expense of the beautiful temple and priceless artifacts. Or to bring back the 2023 one, the timelines we protected uh, in Dial of Destiny, which kind of overrides Indiana Jones's aspiration to just kind of see all of that unraveling in antiquity. And perspectives on heritage law, as you discuss in your article, often written and framed by the victors. And this certainly would apply to the U.S. versus Nazis in World War II, but also to the U.S. and the West more generally versus non-Western nations that they colonized. Did all the films have this kind of victor's perspective, do you think? Yeah, a little bit. And that's the thing in Temple of Doom at the end, with you know, the British army actually saving the community from the evil invaders. And I think that once we buy Indiana Jones as the hero and the people with whom he works as being on the quote-unquote right side, then we end up having this victorious justice conversation almost normalized, right? We don't really question it anymore because we want to root for the hero. We want the ending to be a satisfying, happy ending. And of course, the Ark should go to a storage facility as a result. But doing so is not only what we expect to happen, also the best possible outcome. And never mind that the U.S. is effectively looting the artifact. So to extrapolate it into heritage law more broadly, it's this tendency to normalize certain behavior as if it is the best outcome for heritage. So, you know, that museums get to take artifacts from everywhere, that the 1970 convention doesn't retroact that we were talking about earlier. And heritage law kind of does a lot of that uh, because it has a tendency to erase the past and to go with the status quo of the moment when the heritage was legally declared to be heritage, which is this whole thing of, you know, now because the 1970 convention doesn't retroact, the moment it entered into force, what it did, and that's not necessarily what people wanted it to do, but it is what ended up happening, is that it validated everything that happened before 1970. All of that is outside the law and therefore validated by the law because we can't go that far. So the law all the time chooses victors, right? And enforces those narratives and it makes things hard to rediscuss and reopen, which of course is really complicated with heritage law because we're talking about identity, right? And things that people feel very strongly about. Like the scene you mentioned before at the outset of Raiders with Indiana Jones and Marcus, where there's that reference to law, it's, you know, it suggests that what Indiana Jones is doing is supported by morality as well as legally. Uh, film doesn't get into the legal issues in this pre-UNESCO period, but it suggests law and right are both on Indiana Jones' side throughout. Exactly, right? So as long as Indiana Jones wins, then that's the version of history. That's the things we should fight for. So Lucas, I have to ask you, what's your favorite movie of the trilogy and why? So as a moviegoer uh, or someone who wants to be entertained, Raiders is my favorite, like by a long shot. I think it's nearly flawless as a romp, even though famously there's this argument that if Indiana Jones hadn't been in the movie, the outcome would have been exactly the same. But anyway, leaving that aside, I think it's a fantastic movie. But as a heritage lawyer, and I know this is controversial as far as moviegoers go, I'd say Temple of Doom is my favorite. Because it's the one movie, right, that centers a heritage creator and what they want and them keeping their heritage. And that kind of makes us think that heritage law is not just about a thing. It's also and most fundamentally about people. 
So I would have to go with Temple of Doom wearing my academic hat, but my normal person uh, heart will always go to Raiders. Very well put. I have to agree. And preparing for this podcast and diving in on this subject really did deepen my appreciation for Temple of Doom, which also has some amazing action sequences. But Raiders, of course, is the iconic one. It's been so great to talk with you about this. And uh, I'd love to have you come on again, talk about Monuments Men and Women in Gold, as well as some other great cultural preservation issues kind of going back, including movies like The Maltese Falcon. Yes. Right. I haven't actually looked at it with the International Heritage Law hat on, but as I kind of think about it as you were talking, there's probably a lot there to unpack as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And have me back anytime. Well, thanks again, Lucas. Great chatting with you. Thank you.